planes themselves are actually very, very safe. You're getting great air. Yes, you are close together, but you're getting great air on a plane. When you're embarking, disembarking, and waiting in the lounges, that's a different story. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Dr. Fred Southwick for our weekly coronavirus update. Uh, let's kick it off with what whatever is uh, top of mind coming from this past week. Yeah, go ahead. The biggest thing that, you know, is I've been looking at the case rates around the world. And if you look at the map of the world, the only places that are having significant issues right now are South America, a cu- only a couple of countries in Southern Africa, and Bangladesh. The rest of the world is, for right now, is doing okay. Um, you know, the concerns, of course, are what about Delta? We know what the issues are in the UK. We have concerns about Delta becoming dominant and what that's going to do in the um, EU. And then that begs the question of of Delta in the U.S. Yeah, I, I, I'm at a hotel and the maitre d' has not gotten vaccinated yet. And what I warned him is that the Delta uh, masks are not going to work very well against the Delta. You need to get vaccinated. We know if you get both doses of Moderna or Pfizer or AstraZeneca, you've got about an 83, 85% protection rate efficacy. And the masks are not going to be protective. So that's another motivation to get vaccinated. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been working with and a lot of people are saying, oh, well, that means that we're so much more, Delta is so much more dangerous because we were 90, 95% against the baseline strain. And I, I keep making the point that, yes, but but that it, that would still have been considered phenomenally successful as a vaccine, if, even if that was the, the baseline uh, efficacy rate. Yeah, and I think that so far it's just for serious disease. I don't think they have enough to say whether about hospitalization and death. Do they? I I didn't run across that. Well, that's I've been seeing serious disease, and I usually yeah. I was kind of taking that to mean hospitalization and death. Yeah, it may be hospitalization. I don't yeah. know if it's death. It's definitely hospitalization. Serious disease means the oxygen levels are low enough. You need supplemental oxygen. So you do in that by definition, almost always means you're hospitalized. Um, so the two questions from your comments that at least come to my mind is, number one, can you trust the data that you're seeing around the world? There, there have been uh, many reports that uh, the data coming out of certain countries is not reliable. And secondly, uh, Fred, as you and Bill are underscoring, the Delta variant is different in terms of what people have to do to minimize the harm. And um, there are questions about, you know, uh, if Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine are effective, what about Johnson & Johnson? And I'd also curious if you have any views on the AstraZeneca, the efficacy of that vaccine. I can start with the the views on data. Um, No, we know that there are areas of the world that they don't have the public health systems that are able to adequately capture good, objective, absolute numbers. But for much of this, what we're looking at is magnitude of the epidemic in the area. We're looking at the epidemic curve. And so if we take India, for example. We know in India that, that they are not effectively capturing all of the cases and all of the deaths that are happening outside of the major population centers. 
but they're capturing their data in a fairly uh, standardized fashion that's over time. So as we see the, the as we saw the rise in the uh, number of cases, and then we've seen now over the past month where cases are down to right around one sixth of what they were four to six weeks ago. Um, we can't say that the absolute number of cases is accurate, but we can say that the order of magnitude, or the or the even better than the order of magnitude, the order the the magnitude of the decrease is is trustable. But then there are other areas of the world, such as China, where I don't think we can trust anything we're hearing from China. We know that there are large numbers of cases, especially in the Western provinces, um, but they are reporting single digit, maybe up to double digit numbers of cases, not case rates, numbers of cases across the whole country. And that's just hard. It's it's not believable. And then the countries that have well-developed systems generally have very trustable data. One of the problems we're having in the United States, however, is that certain states have decided they're not going to be publishing their data as frequently. Their argument is that the cost of data is is just too much, and so they're only going to put the data out on a periodic basis. That makes it harder to follow what's happening, but it's still, I think the data is still trustworthy. It's just not quite as useful. Yeah, I, I agree uh, completely with Bill's assessment, and uh, as long as they use the same way of measuring throughout the period, then the relative changes are reliable. And that's what we really need to monitor. And that's what's happening in, in uh, India. And uh, I, I'm in Florida, and Florida has decided to report cases once a week. And I think that uh, makes it a little more difficult to assess where Florida is as reg- with regards to the epidemic. Uh, with regard to the, the, the effectiveness of the various vaccines, um, the, the studies that are coming out are increasingly demonstrating that the vaccines are very effective. There's been a little bit of concern about um, decrease in the infective, effectiveness of the vaccines against the what is becoming the predominant strain, the Delta, or formerly known as the Indian strain. But even at the levels that we're seeing, you know, in mid 80s for efficacy. I mean, those are levels that would be make any other vaccine be considered a, a overwhelming success. They're just decreased compared to what we saw, the, the incredible success that we saw with the, the wild type uh, original strain of the, of the virus. Yeah, one, one caveat about that is that they've shown that if you only get the first dose, and this is Pfizer, if you only have the first dose, that uh, the efficacy is only about 30%, 33%. However, if you have the second dose, then the efficacy is uh, protection against serious disease is about 83, 84%. Now, I've only seen that for the Pfizer vaccine. I don't know, Bill, have you seen it for AstraZeneca? I, I have not. Um, I've seen the, the data that that two doses of AstraZeneca and the one dose of J&J um, appear to be working acceptably effective against the Delta variant. Uh, the big concern was that the AstraZeneca was not performing well against the, um, I don't know which letter it used, but the South African variant. Um, but other than, other than that, all the vaccines have been performing well against the circulating variants. Well, the uh, Novavax um, is a purified protein, the spike protein, full-length protein, plus an adjuvant, which is just an agent that increases the immune response 
to the protein. And I believe the efficacy was somewhere around 90%, which is excellent. So it looks like it is an excellent alternative to the mRNA vaccines and to the J&J &J vaccine. So um, I, it's, it's great to have another uh, form of vaccine, which really it's a different principle. Remember with the mRNA vaccines, the message gets into the cells and the cells produce the spike protein. And in this case, you're actually giving the purified protein for the immune cells to process through the vaccine itself. And that's a more standard approach. That's what the uh, pneumococcal pneumonia, the pneumonia vaccines do. And that's uh, what a lot of different vaccines have done. That's also the HIV vaccine uses a similar approach. One of the issues, though, is that because of where we stand in the United States with our vaccine program and that we are uh, we have vaccine that's unfortunately going begging, there's a high likelihood that even though the FDA will authorize the use of the Novavax vaccine, that the production will all will most likely all be directed overseas since we already have the systems in place for all of the other for the the, the other vaccines um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because we know we need to fight this on a, a worldwide battlefront um, so getting additional vaccine overseas not necessarily using it at least initially in the united states is not a bad thing yeah no i agree and it's highly likely it won't be in the united states but there are a group of individuals who are worried about mRNA and DNA, and this vaccine actually works in a different way, and therefore it would overcome their resistance to the vaccine. I think it's a small group, though, and I'm not sure it'll be made available just because of that. One of the other issues, Bill, you might be able to comment better than me, but in general, these protein vaccines are easier to store. You don't need minus 80 or minus 20 degrees, I don't think, to store these. So they're easier to manage. No, that's exactly right. And that's why that's another reason why people have really been looking forward to the Novavax vaccine, because it will be usable in international programs where logistics may be more difficult, be usably usable in those programs uh, much more readily. Um, by the same token, there was actually bad news on the vaccine front this week in that the CureVac vaccine, which was uh, had very good potential, similar idea of easy, much easier logistics. Uh, that was coming out of a, a German pharmaceutical manufacturer, but its approval studies uh, did not show adequate efficacy. And so it's looking right now that that will probably be uh, dropped as a viable vaccine candidate. Turning to a point that um, we began to discuss on the last call, um, Obviously, you've both noted that travel restrictions are being lifted. And uh, the general word is if you're vaccinated, you're good to travel, but nonetheless exercise uh, appropriate precautions. Any change in that uh, as a result of the Delta variant, both in terms of where people might go or how they might travel? And then separately, I wanted to look a little further down the horizon uh, because you both mentioned we should we should talk about the fall and what portends for the fall. So addressing domestic travel and by domestic travel, domestic U.S. as well as intra-European theater travel, um, not including the U.K. I think that for people who are vaccinated, um, free travel is is reasonable. I mean, people should you still want to minimize 
the chance your chance of catching uh, disease because we do know there is a failure rate of the uh, breakthrough rate of the vaccines so minimize your chances of that but otherwise i'm very comfortable with people getting back to travel now then when we start talking about international travel other than inside the uh inside the eu um one of the big issues that's that's coming up is what do you do about proof of vaccination status right? countries would be much more comfortable allowing people in if they had a way of proving vaccine status but the problem is that the uh, there is no good way of doing that the the vaccine cards that are used um, are easily forgeable um, so that as a true proof of vaccination those are very difficult to use and because of that most developed nations are not right now um, uh, taking any kind of proof of vaccination now some some countries that are incredibly heavily dependent on tourism are taking the risk and they're accepting whatever documentation is provided. Um, but then the other consideration that rapidly comes into play is once everyone in a country who wants to be vaccinated has been vaccinated, then do you need to be as rigid about the proof? Because the only people who are at risk are the people who, if they feel so strongly about not vaccinating that they forge their documentation, they're just putting themselves at risk or putting others who have chosen not to get vaccinated at risk. So how this is going to play out over the next uh, few, few weeks really is going to be uh, important to watch. Yesterday, over the early part of this week, the EU announced that they intend to, in the next few days to weeks, um, open the EU to leisure travel from the United States because of the high rate of vaccination and low rate of disease in the United States. But what they haven't figured out and they have not announced is what they are going to do about vaccine status. Uh, generally, they want to include vaccine status, but how do you do that? Um, that's going to be the big issue. The United States has not announced a corresponding opening of borders to non-essential travel from from the uh, EU or the UK. Um, however, the president did announce a White House joint task force in conjunction with the EU, the UK, Canada, and Mexico to determine a way forward to open um, travel between the, the block of countries um, sometime over the course of the summer. The issue of vaccinations are going to be a big part of those deliberations, but no one knows what the outcome is going to be. David, I have a daughter actually in New York City, and I think you're probably familiar with her. There is an app that actually verifies those that are vaccinated in New York State. Now, they have they had that active for a period, but now it's not any longer active. But this is certainly a possibility to actually have uh, an a accepted uh, phone app that proves that you're vaccinated that would not be susceptible to being forged. So that I think is on the horizon. You know, I Bill, both Bill and I have been traveling uh, lately and I would just share what I do when I travel. I uh, wear a, a mask always, which you have to do, but I sit in the window seat. I turn on the air valve because that air is uh, very uh, thoroughly filtered by HIPAA filters and is coming from outside the plane. 
and I do not eat any snacks or drink anything or go to the bathroom. Uh, my The flights have been two hours, so I can manage that. And so I do not move from my seat and I do not take off my mask the entire period. Uh, the danger that that re, the reason we're not opening up travel internationally is as we've talked about before is the this is an, this is an RNA virus it uh, it replicates unfaithfully in other words it makes mistakes when it reproduces the viral RNA so there are going to be multiple single mutations and uh, in areas where there's still uh, many people becoming actively infected then that's a setup for a new uh, variant to develop. And uh, with selection pressures, if part of the, uh, if a significant percent are vaccinated, there may be selection for one that escapes the vaccine. And uh, so in international travel, it's theoretically possible you could become in contact with a variant that actually the vaccine is not very effective for. And that's one of the reasons I'm so cautious when I'm in the plane and after I depart, or after I come into the airport as well. And the one thing I would add to that is just from work that I've done previously with other airborne infections, planes themselves are actually very, very safe. A modern commercial airliner has greater than 30 air exchanges per hour and are using high MERV on the order of MERV, uh, MERV 14 to 17 filters. So you're getting great air. Yes, you are close together, but you're getting great air on a plane. When you're, when you're embarking, disembarking and waiting in the lounges, that's a different story. And you have people from all over the country, maybe even all over the world in these places. So those are the areas where I actually am a little bit more concerned, more concerned than the plane itself. Although doing the things uh, that Fred outlined are certainly, they're going to decrease your risk even more. Yeah, and I keep a six foot distance in the airport. I don't, I try to really stay away from other people because you're exactly right. It's that's where there's more danger. So the takeaway here, prudence, um, maintain common sense. And uh, what I'm hearing from both of you is that the chain of insulation from the virus is only as strong as the weakest link. So in the few minutes we have remaining, uh, I know uh, top of mind for both of you has been, you know, thinking about the fall and what the fall is going to bring and, you know, the potential for school reopenings. So we'd love to, recognizing it's early, uh, nonetheless, get some of your, your thoughts. I, I think that the, the, the fall, you know, it's, it is early. It's so hard to tell where we're going to stand on vaccination. One of the things that actually gives me a little bit of encouragement is in the UK, um, as the Delta has picked up and the, the rate of disease in the UK went from about three cases per 100,000 uh, for a couple of months, up to over the past 10 days, the rate went to greater than eight cases per 100,000 per day. The rate of, va of vaccination uptake also went up. It doubled from about 100,000 vac vaccinations a day to about 200,000 vaccinations per day as younger and younger people in the UK only down, it's only adults. They have not gone to, to any uh, pediatric age groups yet, but they're seeing that, oh my gosh, 
this Delta thing is real and is causing real illness, including amongst the younger age groups. So people are once again concerned and they're getting vaccinated. So if that if we get this same kind of viewpoint in the United States and people start realizing that, yes, vaccinations do make a difference, um, people do get vaccinated, then we may be able to dodge the bullet on a what I don't know what we'd call it, a fourth wave um, in the fall. If, however, we still get stuck at right around 50 to 60 percent of the population vaccinated, I think we do run a risk of, uh, of a further increase, maybe not as great a wave as we saw this fall winter, but another wave this fall. Um, but it's uh, so I don't think we're completely out of the woods. I think it's less likely than it was last year, but I think it's still possible. Bill always uh, has his pulse on, on what's likely in the future, and I certainly agree with his assessment. Uh, several concerns. The Delta, uh, I've been reading about the biology of the Delta variant, and it does appear that it actually reproduces, the virus reproduces more rapidly. So that is a worry. So you get higher concentrations of the virus in your body, which would uh, cause greater inflammation and more severe lung disease and uh, more likely to die. Now, that's not been confirmed, but there is a strong suggestion. And there is a suggestion that younger people are getting much sicker with this variant than with the previous ones. So now the other thing we do know, it's become very clear based on our experience with the uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, is that this is a winter virus. In other words, dry, cold air and getting in crowded, dry environments, small areas, uh, increase the rate of spread and the uh, there that's when a surge would occur. So the very time when school starts, the risk of the infection will be greater. So I think it's really, really important to emphasize the danger of the Delta variant and the importance of vaccinating the young. I actually talked to a nurse who has two young children, ages, uh, I think it was 11 and 13, and she's saying, well, I don't know if I want to give my kids the vaccine. Well, I think we need to do everything we can possible to encourage them because in the schools, it's a very crowded environment and they're very social. And so uh, masks and distancing probably aren't going to help that much. And the other problem is uh, in the U.S. anyway, the school facilities are, they're very old, and the ventilation is very poor. So uh, we really are in danger uh, of, of significant harm to our young people if they aren't vaccinated by the late fall. Fortunately, I believe it's looking like we that the vaccines, the, the mRNA vaccines, may be approved down to age six months by late summer or early fall. So, man, I could see the possibility of school vaccination programs, um, much like many of us who may be a few years older remember from when we were kids. Um, it was a very effective mechanism for administering vaccinations because basically line them up and do the shots. Um, yeah, we've changed a little bit in the way we 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 do those kinds of things, but I think it still could be a very effective way to do it. The other thing that I think may change the dynamic in the fall is that one of the huge 
leads in spreading this was colleges, where you essentially brought people from all over a region, and in some cases all over the country, and put them in it into an environment where they were just freely mixing. And you know, lo and behold, there was significant uh, epidemics, local outbreaks that were related to this these events. Most colleges are at least highly encouraging, if not in many cases, outright requiring vaccination um, in order to prevent this from happening in the fall fall term. I think that will have impact even well beyond the colleges. Yeah, I agree, Bill. And there was a case of, uh, I think it's Baptist Hospital in Houston, Texas, where the uh, health system mandated the vaccine and about 150 uh, uh, healthcare workers uh, refused to take it and went to court. Uh, the judge found in favor of the health system and agreed that they could mandate. So that's very encouraging from an infectious disease standpoint that, uh, man, that mandating a vaccine uh, will be uh, legal. Now, this is in a healthcare system it still hasn't been uh, uh, supported legally in other, ca- other situations. And I wonder, Bill, any thoughts on, on, on the idea of mandating? Um, I, th- I still think, and I think I've said this in this forum before, that I'm very uncomfortable with mandating vaccine, especially in a situation where it's not yet approved. It's, it's only an authorized vaccine. The, the, some of the, and I, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but some of the issues that I've seen is that if you have a bad outcome in a employer-mandated vaccine, that there may be some liability issues that go to the employer on that. OSHA has certainly said that these become reportable events, recordable events in the OSHA framework. Um, and that was, that's going to discourage mandating the vaccine. And in fact, with prior vaccines, we've found that oftentimes mandating actually has a negative effect as opposed to having a very robust uh, educational and encouragement program, including to as as needed, you know, financial or time off incentives to make sure that people are comfortable that they're not going to be penalized uh, in trying to get vaccinated. But oftentimes, those kinds of programs are more effective than actual mandating. So I'll just let me give you um, a little bit of situational awareness. So obviously, follow the Houston case very closely, Fred, and um, you know whether, whether it will hold precedential value in other jurisdictions and this bill is alluding to the you know this is not just a simple issue whether an employer can uh, mandate uh, obviously there are issues of potential uh, legal liability uh, number one two there's a we'll call it broadly a labor and morale issue about when the employer uh, mandates it and obviously there are a number of firms that are doing so uh, most of them say uh, also give an exemption, you know, depending upon pre-existing medical issues, uh, possible religious concerns, etc. A complex issue. And what I'm hearing from both your comments is a certain degree of agility and sensitivity. And um, there are ways to get uh, a high degree of compliance other than a specific uh, mandate that people must be uh, vaccinated. So, uh, again, great insights. 
So thank you both, as always, for your valuable time, for following things so closely, for being balanced and uh, rational voices around um, important issues. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.